everybody. I'm here with Bobby Azarian. We talked before about uh, causal magic and the integrative transdisciplinary narrative emerging from the poeticized collaborative convergence of contemporary sciences, the role this could play in stabilizing, re-enchanting, and providing meaning for civilization, and his project to try to build community and ideas around that. We touch lightly on some of the spiritual and religious implications and analogies that come out of that, but we're here to blow the thing wide open today. What's been on your mind since then, Bobby? How have you been nuancing the core ideas lately? Yeah, so when we talked last time, I had a lot of fun, but we just kind of jumped into some topics that I would think uh, would usually come after the sort of core topics around the theory in my book, The Romance of Reality, uh, which isn't my theory. It's sort of a synthesis of theories from people in the past and philosophers. Um, and it's something that I see that's emerging. It's an emerging paradigm that I think will be the scientific paradigm of uh, the 21st century. And um, kind of as a, as a scientist and a journalist, I'm sort of reporting on that and trying to explain what I'm seeing and how all of these things tie together. Because not all of the people who are putting these ideas out there know about each other. And uh, so I think it's important that we see this thing that's emerging and we sort of help it crystallize because I think it's a paradigm that can do a lot of good for the world. And um, it's out there. It just needs to be packaged and made accessible for the mainstream. And so... Yeah, I, I've kind of been working on getting a big picture overview of all of these things that matter, um, things that matter in terms of if you're interested in the nature of reality, like the, the nature of the universe and consciousness and the origin of life um, and life's future, you'll be interested in this. But it's also the ideas can be applied to how you live your life directly. And they can be applied directly to how we design our social systems and economic and political systems um, to make sure, sure those are optimally resilient. Um, so there's a lot of things that come out of something that can sound very philosophical and abstract that are really practical. And the first book, my intention was to kind of lay out this scientific argument of the mechanisms of nature uh, which show that there's purpose and progress in reality. Um, so that there's this progressive evolutionary process that is leading to higher complexity and higher intelligence and higher consciousness. And I wanted to make a rigorous argument that would convince scientists and science-minded people that this view of the cosmos is evolving towards higher complexity is something that we need to look at again because at one time it was kind of like the reigning view of kind of the intellectual world that this was the way things were. Um, Herbert Spencer was a contemporary of Darwin who was more famous than Darwin during his time and he had this idea of cosmic evolution being this process that biological evolution was a part of and uh, social and cultural evolution. Uh, Teilhard de Chardin came after him but by that time, the idea was more fringe and Teilhard de Chardin was a priest. And so the idea kind of became associated with uh, religion, 
when in Herbert Spencer's time, it really wasn't. And uh, there are a lot of cultural reasons that this idea of a universe that's progressing in this way um, fell out of fashion. Uh, and some people saw it as ideolog ideologically dangerous. So when some people hear this theory, they might go, okay, that sounds really cool, but why aren't the biggest people in science like saying like this is a potential theory of everything right now? Um, and you have to realize that there is this, there are these influences of culture, which basically have the uh, negative effect of like taking some ideas off the table and then just people can't go there for certain reasons. Um, of course, uh, fortunately, we have a lot of maverick scientists who have completely ignored, you know, the, those cultural norms and have been very clear about this sort of new cosmic narrative, I call it. Um, so it's not new at all. It's old, but I think it's starting to people are coming back to the idea that maybe this is how nature is. And uh, fortunately, the people who do support this idea are like some of our, you know, greatest thinkers across all fields. Um, so we have the science, but then we also have people who have seen the value in these ideas um, in regards to how they live their life and how they find meaning and purpose. And that's sort of the domain of spirituality. And so there are these communities that I don't know if they would be called new age communities or, you know, some people might identify as that some people won't probably um, most people from these communities wouldn't call themselves that, but people from outside might see it that way. But there are these spiritual communities that have kind of coalesced around this new story, uh, which is really the story of complexity and the story of emergence. And um, I've said this before, but when I wrote the first book, I hadn't even heard of integral theory, for example, and metamodernism. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hadn't heard of it, especially there's different types of metamodernism. So there's like cultural metamodernism, and then there's this metamodernism that's sort of based on complexity theory and integral theory. And um, it was really cool to see that because, you know, this thing that I'm seeing that's emerging, this scientific paradigm that has all these spiritual implications, there's already people who have seen these connections, which is great. But at the same time, it's super limited um, because, you uh, even though the, the, the theories that have been established in kind of this world, like integral theory and spiral dynamics, I think have a lot of value. Um, at least integral theory just is being ignored by academia and for cultural reasons. And part of that's good and part of it's bad. But um, the thing that people are seeing here, which I guess could be called, you know, a, a metamodern worldview because it comes after postmodernism. It's sort of post postmodernism uh, is um, something that's that's a lot larger than one guy's ideas. Um, and that and that person, Ken Wilber, who started integral theory, um, the reason that he had these ideas that have been influential on a decent amount of people um, 
is because he was seeing this exact same scientific narrative from looking at like complex system science and like philosophy of emergence and cybernetics. And you were seeing it in other areas of like um, the new age world too, um, which was also influenced by these things we were finding out about quantum mechanics. Um, but yeah, so uh, this is something that would radically change the way we look at our place in the universe. And it's an extremely technical scientific uh, theory of how nature is, but it also has these really interesting spiritual implications and then all of these practical applications. So yeah, in this conversation, uh, it's not, it's not going to be like super organized because there's so much to say and I haven't really had time to sort of package these ideas in the way I want to. Um, but this conversation, I think uh, for anyone who's like super hungry for, for, for ideas, um, sort of revolving around this paradigm that I'm talking about, um, it could be a source for people to be like, okay, he mentioned that person. Let me go investigate and, and, and look into all of that work. Let me go look into this book. And um, this is kind of setting up what I plan to be doing in the next year. So I'm going to be publishing articles on this at my Substack, Road to Omega, at my Psychology Today blog, and a series of articles for Big Think that will... Um, all revolve around the kind of things that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, I'm starting a second book, and the book is basically a follow-up to my first book. And it th that's kind of the challenge is to how do we package these ideas and make them really fun for people to learn about and show them there's kind of a new story of the cosmos, and it's a story that involves you. So I'm hearing a community aspect and a theory aspect. The theory aspect had an upsurge in the late 19th, early 20th century, and it's had a kind of resurgence around the turn of the millennium, as evidenced by thinkers like Wilbur. Um, so there's a theory aspect, and then there's a community aspect where people are focused on doing a kind of uh, cultural experience and to some degree sets of practices that resemble spirituality and religion, and there's something in common between these um, synoptic, big picture, almost religiously poeticized, convergent scientific meta theories and these arising emergent types of human social experience, modes of thinking and desire to be engaged in practice. So given that we've got all of that, where do we go forward on that? I mean, I think the two main questions for me there are how do we make sure the community of practice is has got the good theory and the theories oriented toward the community of practice so they can work in a really complementary fashion the other question is what does the theory still need right when we say we had this early spike of these theorists uh, and there were some cultural reasons why people turned away from that theory but there are also i'm sure some practical reasons of things that still needed to be challenged forth out of those models like what did they not know scientifically that we know now that we need to have integrated into the core of these models so that they can survive the kinds of challenges that might have initially bumped them out of the game yeah so so my experience with becoming familiar with these ideas is going to be different than 
other people that are listening to this because like I said, I didn't know who Wilbur was until like a year ago, like six months ago or something. Um, so there was this kind of complexity science revolution. Uh, I guess it, so there's just been this series of revolutions where people cared about systems and specifically complex adaptive systems. So living systems or maybe artificial systems that were creating artificial intelligence systems that are modeled after living systems. Um, but we're really interested in complex adaptive systems. When you say life, that's kind of vague. So when you say complex adaptive systems, then you have a more sort of concrete, demysticized version of life. And so we're going to try to talk. So I'm going to just throw in things that I think are important. And hopefully listeners will see the unity that exists among these ideas and um, we'll come back to them. But we're also going to try to point out language issues when we can, because language is, is part of the real culprit here. The way a lot of the division is as far as like between like the atheist community and the spiritual community um, who are seeing, you know, scientific like like mechanisms in science, like people talking about, for example, like emergence or agency, like where science is starting to focus on those topics. And um, there's, uh, you, you know, where you, you can have spiritual people seeing all these spiritual aspects of these ideas, and then you have atheists seeing those ideas as, as not being related to spirituality in any way. Um, a lot of that comes down to how we've defined words. Like, for example, teleology. Um, teleology is this kind of notion that there's purpose or progress in nature, inevitable progress. And for some people, that would imply a design, and a design would imply a designer. Um, and so this idea of teleology, which was popular with 19th and 20th century philosophers, um, the, the term came up with Aristotle and then Kant talked about it some too. But um, so it, it was kind of, it started off as a philosophical idea. Um, and then because this appearance of purpose and progress in nature hadn't been explained scientifically. Um, religious people were thinking like, you know, th this is where the gaps of science are, a kind of God of the gaps argument. And they would point to those things as being signs of kind of a spiritual element of, of reality. And some people even called some of these things like supernatural, like they thought life was propelled by this mystical force. And that was basically what vitalism was. And uh, the French philosopher, uh, Henry Bergson had this idea of an Elan Vital sort of driving life. Um, and then Teilhard de Chardin had this idea of inevitable progress. And um, this kind of like everything on the biosphere going towards evolving towards this omega point, the state of maximal complexity and consciousness. And um, so what was really confusing is that these ideas 
to some people who were operating under a scientific paradigm that just didn't include these concepts, these concepts would appear to be somewhat supernatural or mystical. However, it would turn out that we can understand the mechanisms of this, you know, tendency towards higher complexity and intelligence and tendency towards progress in a purely natural way that doesn't involve any supernatural force. We can understand what propels life uh, in a way where it can be described mechanistically and mathematically. However, the stuff that's going on that makes these systems behave in this way or, or shows this new kind of behavior, they're mechanisms that were not recognized by the previous scientific paradigm. So in some way, they were kind of above what was natural. They were kind of meta-natural, you could call it, because if you don't have a conceptual framework for something, you don't understand it, and then it happens in reality, you're going to go, oh, that was like a little bit of magic that just happened. But when you understand that phenomenon, no matter how weird it is, and you start to break apart, like when it happens, like under what circumstances, then you start to understand the causality of it. And suddenly it's mechanistic. And then, so you're left with the question, well, is it like, you know, supernatural or something? No, it was never supernatural. You just had a theory of the inanimate world of inanimate physics of, of mechanics outside of systems that are these kind of control systems, these cybernetic control systems that are processing information in a way that animates them and gives them agency. So even today, if you talk about some of these ideas about progress and purpose in nature, some people will be like, you know, especially people from kind of like an atheist skeptic crowd will be like, no, 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 no. Those that's pseudoscience. That's not even real. The things that you're talking about, consciousness doesn't, it's an illusion. It doesn't have any causal power on the world. Really, you can understand the world in terms of particles, and it's just like a bunch of little tiny billiard balls bouncing around, hitting each other. And then everything that we see is sort of um, a deterministic result of that billiard ball game at the atomic level. And that everything above that is kind of an illusion that, you know, we say, oh, why did I raise my hand? Because I decided to. I was talking to you. I wanted to prove a point. And I had the intention to raise my hand. Um, to me, I want to describe that in terms of me having an intention to do that and kind of having a conscious, making a conscious effort to raise my hand. But a reductionist would say, oh, it's just all particles bumping around and you raised your hand, not because you really had the intention, but because this whole thing is a trajectory that's been determined from the initial state of the universe because it's just this giant pool ball game where there's no room for anything to have real agency because it's just this deterministic uh, game with, with no real players. Uh, it's just this one trajectory. So that was the idea of Laplace, the French philosopher and mathematician of, I think, the late 18th century, early 19th. Century, um, but so yeah, he was super influential, and he was basically taking taking Newton's theory of mechanics and sort of applying it to the whole universe. Um, 
And so we have this just purely deterministic universe. And there's this thought experiment called Laplace's demon um, that uh, basically says if we could know the state of the universe at any time, if we could know where all the particles were at any time, their uh, position and momentum, we could calculate the state of the universe at any other time in the future or before. And that would seem to suggest no one has any control over anything. There's just one deterministic trajectory. We can't change the future. And if you really believe that, you're not really motivated to change the future because you're like, I'm an epiphenomenon. I really have no control. What's going to happen is going to happen. So you already see right there with the reductionist philosophy and this hard determinism, you get this nihilistic philosophy where you can't change the future. And if you really believe that, which a lot of scientific-minded people do, especially before quantum mechanics and before we understood chaotic phenomena, um, then I imagine that has real effects on your behavior and your agency and how much you exercise it in the real world. So if none of that is true, we need to understand what the truth is and what agency is and what this process is that is going towards this state of higher complexity, which from the old worldview, and we could talk about statistical thermodynamics from Ludwig Boltzmann, who in the 19th century basically had this explanation of, you know, basically how organized systems will tend towards disorder. And um, that's, that's a really complicated topic that I just wrote an article for a website called Noema about that's coming out um, next week. But Basically, um, if the universe is going towards this more complex state and the biosphere is going towards this more complex state, that would lead to a paradox too. People would, you know, think like, well, why don't systems, you know, if systems should in the long run tend towards disorder and you only get a little bit of complexity when you have a transient fluctuation away from that trend, how can we have order and complexity that's persistent in the universe? How can it be growing? And what are the limits to that? So I just mentioned a couple different paradigms from science, the, the sort of Laplacian worldview that everything's deterministic and we have no agency. And then this kind of idea from statistical thermodynamics, which says that everything is sort of falling apart and the universe is winding down, which I'm arguing uh, aren't true. Um, so what's that story that we're seeing Back to what I was talking about when you first asked this question, I mentioned this, these different fields emerging like cybernetics and then complexity science. So cybernetics was in like the 20s or 30s, then like chaos theory and, and, and sort of general systems theory and complex systems theory came about in sort of like the 40s and 50s and 60s. And... Um, in the 70s and 80s, I feel like there was like evolutionary theory was starting to recognize mechanisms all throughout nature um, that uh, basically all systems are evolving. So you had universal Darwinism with like Richard Dawkins and Dan Dennett. And, and in the 90s, I feel like that was a big influ influential time for the, the Santa Fe Institute kind of making a media splash as, as far as like being this institute that came together 
with Nobel Prize winners like Mary Gelman and a lot of people coming from uh, Los Alamos and just like some, some world-class scientists there being really focused on complex system science. So complexity science really says, okay, there's this thing called emergence. We get these higher level systems. Um, these systems are organized and they maintain themselves through these feedback loops, which is what we understand from cybernetics. And they encode information, which is what we understand from um, uh, Shannon's information theory applied to biology. And uh, we have this new field called non-equilibrium thermodynamics, which is the statistical thermodynamics of how organization arises in nature, rather than just talking about closed systems, which don't have any energy coming in, which go towards disorder. So we have this big picture of things getting more complex, systems emerging, those systems making copies of themselves and coming together with other systems to form higher level systems. Um, and we have sort of a theory of how these systems maintain their non-equilibrium state. So this state of organization against this tendency towards decay. Um, and we suddenly have that starting to influence all of the fundamental sciences. Like it's starting to influence biology and neuroscience and now we have the field of computational neuroscience, which is basically taken up cybernetics. And we have um, Carl Friston, who's the most cited neuroscientist in the world. He has the free energy principle and the Bayesian brain hypothesis, which takes this narrative that I've explained and turns it into to, to, to something formal. But basically, the idea is that all organisms are systems that have to exist in a universe that has this tendency towards disorder. And to do that, we have to extract energy from the environment. To extract energy from the environment, we have to always be minimizing our model's um, prediction error or uncertainty. So I just threw a lot of stuff out there. Um, this point that I mentioned at the end about having a model that you use to predict the world uh, we can go into more detail about that. Um, but what I tried to just articulate there in a very sloppy and roundabout way is that there has been this evolution of ideas about complex systems and living systems or adaptive systems and um, how these systems fit into the larger picture, this sort of evolutionary process that doesn't seem to be just a biological process, but that biology is nested inside this larger cosmic evolution process. And that that is when you look at the totality of all of those fields and the narrative that emerges from that, that's what metamodern theory is. That's what integral theory is. In the book, I unite these things into a theory that I call the integrated evolutionary synthesis and a natural philosophy that I call poetic metanaturalism. That was before I knew about these communities. And you have the word integrated in there and you have the, the meta prefix in there. Um, so this is something that would happen whether integral theory ever existed or not. Um, it's the next paradigm that I'm arguing is the paradigm that any intelligent species on any biosphere would converge on when they start to understand their place in the larger 
system that they're a part of. You just get these evolutionary and um, systems principles that sort of describe the dynamics of this evolutionary pr process toward progress. And people like Wilbur um, saw that. And then, you know, he, he was building on this idea of the great chain of being by Arthur Kosler. I don't know how to say his last name, but um, so there's this, so we can go and yeah. So let me pause here and let you talk for a second. But um, what I was going to say is there's, I guess, two main concepts we should talk about, and they're both meta concepts. So they fit into meta modernism, but one's the meta system transition and one's meta awareness or metacognition. Meta system transitions will sort of, there's my cat, will ex <laughs> explain the evolutionary process and how we have the, this process that gets us to higher complexity because it happens in stages. And um, basically parts come together to make great, greater holes and those holes make copies of themselves. And then those come together to make greater holes. This is the whole idea behind holons and a holarchy that I see as part of integral theory. It's absolutely awesome that people are talking about that in that language, because that is the story of reality. We can explain reality in terms of loops and levels, and we'll unpack what that means. But um, yeah, this story is something that people in the spiritual community have seen and were smart enough to go, okay, this is the science behind it. And then kind of capitalized on that. But as far as like my perspective goes, um, this is just a scientific paradigm that's been brewing for over a century. And people are finally understanding the mechanistic side of it to where it's starting to be something that people outside of spiritual communities are willing to welcome. So we've got uh, a very productive, but in some ways limited history of a reductive mechanistic science. And it's got two flaws. One flaw is that it tends to set people up in a, a nihilistic world that sabotages some of their motivation, some of their confidence in human agency and a directionality to reality. And the other problem is that it offsets a lot of the mysteries that it can't solve into a murky terrain that becomes supernatural ideation. And so you get a lot of people who are capable of seeing some patterns it's left out, and they tend to be very attracted to the supernatural domain just because the reductive mechanism isn't really there to explain it. But over the last 100, 150 years, a certain subset of the sciences has been extremely productive in generating ideas that are applicable to all of the sciences and make the mysterious areas, the gaps amenable to a complex mechanistic worldview that can take this over. So now we don't necessarily need to have that split between the supernatural and the natural. The natural can take over the things we were going to the supernatural for, and it can give us back the, the value and agency and motivation that might have been left out of reductive mechanism. Yeah, I think everybody's everybody who's listening to this is pretty good with all of that. I think there's probably a lot of curiosity around for I'd like to get to the loops and levels thing. Maybe we'll get to it through this. I think Friston is in a very interesting position right now that a lot of people are aware that there's something going on with his idea set that is pertinent to all of the sciences 
and all of the practical extensions of things like spirituality that might be understandable in a new cognitive way through these kinds of models. But I don't think there's a lot of clarity for most people around what Friston's key ideas are and how they apply to um, the specifics of this emergent directional kind of a worldview. So maybe you could say something about what you think Friston's key contributions are here and how they're applied. Yeah. Um, so let's try to explain all of that. And Friston is a really important person um, in this development, but he's focusing on a small part of this larger process as well. But in a way, his idea sort of applies at all of these levels. So it's actually kind of part of the whole story as well. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, but if people go into the free energy principle thinking they're going to find a theory of everything, they're just really going to find a technical theory about how we basically need to, how we're learning and adapting in life. We're kind of just always updating our, our model of the world, our predictive model of the world. And, um, you can apply this to the simplest organism. If it's behaving in a sort of evolutionarily optimal way, if it's surviving, um, it's learning from its, its mistakes, its errors in its environment. And, and that's really what his theory is about. But um, yeah, we're going to tie that to the whole evolutionary process uh, in a second. And that's what part two of my book actually tries to do is to tie together this sort of evolutionary theory that's this larger cosmic evolutionary theory with um this sort of bayesian revolution that that friston has a, been a big part of and you could call that when you merge those two things a sort of instead of universal darwinism a universal bayesianism and those things are the same thing um a guy named john campbell is a great author who has been connecting evolutionary theory and this sort of Bayesian theory of Friston's and he's working with Friston too. And, um, yeah, so it's not just a connection that I've made. A lot of people are making these connections, especially in that world of computational neuroscience and AI, the people who are really interested in Friston's work, like the active inference paradigm. Um, they seem to see that there's this larger evolutionary process and they've even, talked about how this is a hierarchical process and that these processes of Bayesian inference exist at all of these levels. So you can even talk about a society as minimizing free energy or minimizing its models prediction error. And Friston has done a lot of that work himself with someone named uh, Maxwell Ramstead. Um, but I just want to mention something before we get into that uh, in any more detail. Um, you talked about and you put it exactly right um, and really eloquently, but uh, that that science basically didn't deal with some of these topics. And then you had people that would kind of see those topics and find supernatural versions of it or something. And now we're starting to demystify those topics. Um, the people who saw the kind of supernatural or mystical element of these things that weren't being addressed um it, it wasn't as if science 
announced that, okay, there are these things we don't understand like emergence um, or consciousness and they're really neat and uh, may change the way we think about reality. Um, and just keep in mind, there's a lot that science doesn't know. I think if science had said that, it would have been in a good position. But reductionist science was mostly like, oh, yeah, those things don't exist. You don't have free will. It's an illusion. Um, consciousness has no causal power. There's no such thing as evolutionary progress towards higher intelligence. It's random. They just made all of these statements because there was too much certainty. And that's a really big problem in science. And you would think that if anywhere in science, people would be very aware of how certain they should be about things, but it's actually worse of science because science, we tend to think that like, okay, this is the method of arriving at truth uh, through like empirical testing. And that is the method of that. But we're always at this sort of tentative place with truth. It's like, there's no way to prove something is completely true, but you can prove it true tentatively by using it by using that theory to make predictions. And then if those predictions come true compared to other theories making predictions, then you can be reasonably certain that your theory is true. But what we've seen is that scientific paradigms, whether it was Newton's paradigm or then relativity and then quantum mechanics, all of these things, every paradigm that existed at some point where people thought, okay, we understand the whole universe in terms of science was found to have some really big errors and, and to not be explaining reality perfectly accurately. And so they, that's what science is. It's just this constant revising of paradigms. But I would say that science is actually part of this evolution of worldviews and that you can trace that back to religion and you can see religion as a sort of proto-science and it's just always a, a constant uh, process of revision where you have these ideas, you have these speculations about the ultimate nature of reality, uh, which religion has. And then it has all these practical teachings that are also the result of, you know, testing in real life, humans trying things out through trial and error and retaining what works. So science is really a progression of evolution. And the people that sort of got turned off by the reductionist scientific mindset were right to do so because you had a lot of people claiming that certain things just simply weren't true and that we knew everything um, and that there was no agency, things like that. And, and, and they were actually wrong. So the way you put it is, is lovely. And, and we are coming to that point, but um, I felt it was kind of like, generous a generous way to sort of you know it just sounded like okay science didn't cover these things um and and then you know people were interested and found like these sort of sort of had spiritual interpretations of these things now we're figuring things out it was like oh, the, the way i see it they were just completely at at war with each other like in these communities and you could still see it online um, but the communities, I think, are kind of shrinking and people are coming to this middle place, but they absolutely hate each other. And they just claim that the other side just has no idea what they're talking about. So we all need to be really aware 
of the fact that every model has some uncertainty, including the one that I'm about to describe to you, and that it's going to be wrong in some ways, and that reality is more complex than our models, such that there will be phenomena in nature that we think is impossible. Or maybe it's something that happens. Let's say it's some sort of psychic phenomena. I'm not saying that any of the psychic phenomena that we know about are real, but let's say we do learn that there, that when you get a sense of someone that you know really well about to call you, let's just say, and there's all these explanations for why this might not be real, but let's say we find out that it's real. What happens then? Did we just prove the supernatural? No, scientists are going to go, okay, there's this, this causal connection that's happening. What kind of mechanisms could be behind this? And someone go, well, entanglement is spooky action at a distance. When particles interact physically, they get entangled. And then you can measure one and have an influence on the other. Maybe there's some sort of cognitive entanglement through social interaction where brains become entrained. And then who knows if we did observe that that was real. And then we go looking for the mechanism. We might find a perfectly natural or we would find because whatever, however it's working, suddenly natural gets redefined and science gets redefined and kind of swallows what was previously supernatural. And so we never know what is science and what's supernatural. We never know what's physical and what's metaphysical. Those definitions will continuously change. And there's always this murkiness at that demarcation line. And that's kind of awesome because it makes reality magical. It goes, there's all of this future magic waiting to be discovered. Um, and, uh, we could call that Clark's principle. So the science writer, Arthur C. Clark, made the uh, statement that any future, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, and I think all of us should keep that in mind because right now we're talking over technology that would have been indistinguishable um, from, magic, uh, from magic to Newton or Galileo. And Newton himself was an alchemist and just the, the mystic, uh, the like... Um, a mystic of the highest degree. So many of our greatest scientists were, were spiritual or considered themselves to be mystic. Um, Kurt Godel was very religious. Sir Arthur Eddington, Lord Kelvin, James Clerk Maxwell, pretty much all of the famous physicists, most of the founders of the second law of thermodynamics, which is this gloomy law where, where Christians, um, uh, Sir Arthur Eddington called himself uh, a rational mystic. And Einstein was, you know, he believed in the God of Spinoza. Um, so yeah, uh, we shouldn't be against, like, there should be no battle between like scientists and skeptics and like this kind of, you know, the, the people who see this magic and, and mysticism in nature, because it is a very mystical place. We do have to be careful because there are new age people that are completely just lying to people and selling products because of it. And it can get very dangerous if you say a crystal can heal you when, when you have cancer and the person dies because they didn't go get treatment. That can be very dangerous. So I'm not, you know, some, some of this skepticism and cultural war between the two sides is good because it filters out kind of the extremes on both sides. But um, yeah, we live in... Uh, 
a very magical world, uh, and we haven't discovered most of its magic yet. So with that being said, maybe we should get into the mechanistic story, and then all of this kind of ranting will hopefully start to, all these ideas will kind of get anchored onto a more technical, um, orderly um, understanding of this evolutionary process. Yeah. Okay. So we've got a good sense of the historical backdrop uh, that's put us in this situation. What are the, uh, what are some of the key principles you're seeing that open up the realm of mechanism to make this leap forward and flesh out this kind of worldview that you're dedicating yourself to? Yeah. Okay. So Ilya Prigogine wrote a book called Order Out of Chaos, and he got the Nobel Prize. He was a Belgian biochemist that mostly did work in sort of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s um, in non-equilibrium thermodynamics. So thermodynamics was all about, you know, there was this narrative of systems tend towards disorder. And he's like, well, what about the things that's spontaneously organized in nature, like whirlpools and tornadoes? Like, how does that order spontaneously emerge and could that have to do something with living systems and if you read Prigogine's book he talks about philosophers so he specifically brings up Hegel and Whitehead and Herbert Spencer so if you want to trace this idea back you can see this evolution and it's you know these it's it's no coincidence that Hegel and Whitehead seem to be undergoing this kind of resurgence in interest and popularity um, because they were people who were kind of illuminating this story early on. So Hegel talked about sort of how humans in nature are kind of co-evolving towards this state where the final state is kind of the recognition of the spirit of everything. It's this kind of, it was similar to Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's Omega Point Theory in that regard. And he acknowledged the importance of levels in reality. Um, and Whitehead had process theory, which basically understood that there was this dynamical process leading to more and more organization. And, and Whitehead associated that order in nature with God. Um, and so it was interesting that Prigogine, as a physicist and a chemist, recognized clearly that you know all of those people's story were part of this same story, and it's definitely not a story of the universe becoming more disordered. It's a story of the universe becoming increasingly organized. And... So, and just to explain, like the second law of thermodynamics in its original, original version was just about the fact that there's a certain amount of energy in the universe available to do work and that energy is getting dispersed. So that's really when we, you talk about entropy in the original sense, it was more a measure of dissipated energy or energy that got used up and spread out and was unavailable to do work. Um, 
And so the idea was that that energy supply was running out. And so it was never in the beginning about the universe becoming increasingly disordered. It was about the fact that the universe seemed to be this kind of machine and that life is a sort of machine as well. And that at some day it would run out of fuel. And at that point, the order would fall apart. But we now know that um, it's a lot more complicated than that. And in the first law of thermodynamics and this, the second law, basically, the, the, maybe they should just apply to closed systems or certain systems inside the universe, but not to the universe as a whole. And maybe the supply of usable energy isn't limited. Um, maybe the expansion of the universe being driven by dark energy actually allows for life to continue forever. And that's exactly what my article coming out next week at the website Noema is all about. So I won't go into detail into that, uh, to that right now, but maybe we could talk about it at the end. Um, but so, okay, let's, let's start with this concept of the metasystem transition. And that's, so Prigogine's work was really about how order forms from chaos in nature. So how do you have a system of particles that suddenly you get the spontaneous emergence of this organized system? Well, if there's energy flowing through that system, then the system doesn't naturally tend towards disorder. It doesn't disperse. And a lot of systems do. So the classic example of a, you know, a system of particles Becoming more disordered is if you like drop a blob of ink into water. Friston uses this example. It starts to disperse and you see it spread out throughout the glass, but you don't see it reorganize into a blob. That would be a highly unlikely thing to see happen. Um, but so what Prigogine noticed is that under the right conditions, if you have energy flowing through a system, it pushes it away from a state of thermodynamic equilibrium Thermodynamic equilibrium is when the ink blob spreads through the whole glass and it's basically just this uniform distribution of things. And you're like, well, why is that maximum disorder if it's a uniform distribution? It's like, well, language gets really tricky here. But the idea is that all of the particles are no longer in this coherent blob. They're just kind of randomly fluctuating separately. From each other so there's this kind of molecular chaos if you could zoom in and see it at that level um, but what prigogine showed was that if you have energy flowing through a system it pushes that system far from equilibrium meaning it pushes it away from this state of of disorder and just uniform distribution and it pushes those elements if they're interacting with each other um, toward an organized configuration that is represented mathematically by the structure called an attractor in its state space. So it's space of all possible configurations. It gets moved towards this corner of state space and it moves into an attractor, which is a state of stability that you could call a non-equilibrium steady state because equilibrium, remember, everything's like spread out and mixed up. It gets really confusing because people have also called this a state of dynamic equilibrium because it's an organized system that's in equilibrium with its environment. Um, so you may hear me say, you know, the state of order is a state of dynamic equilibrium, but I'm also saying that it's far from equilibrium, which is far from thermodynamic e equilibrium, which sounds almost the same. So it gets very really confusing. Um, 
so yeah, that's another language issue that just, I mean, there's tons of language issues that make this thing hard to understand because Carl Friston talks about this organized state of dynamic equilibrium, but it is in thermodynamic terms, a non-equilibrium state or far from equilibrium state. Anyway, so when you have this energy gradient, like uh, simplest example is you heat up um, like a pan of water. If you have like o- like water or oil, before it starts to boil, these convection cells will form, which are kind of like, it's kind of, if you look at pictures, uh, a sort of like hexagonal structure of these kind of like bubble type things. And this happens... I don't know if it you'll always see it if you're trying to boil water at home, but if you like look up a video on how to make convection cells or binyard cells, they're called, there's like a point right before boiling where you can see these structures form and they basically form because there's all this heat flowing through the system. There's all this energy and basically organisms arrange themselves into this sort of flow path that sort of um, uses up that energy. So the energy is kind of being used to create this ordered state and it's also dissipating energy in the process. So it's creating entropy, but, um, this explains how order forms in nature. You just have energy flowing through a system, pushing it away from equilibrium towards this organized state towards this attractor. And then, so you get this cyclical structure. That's this dynamic structure that maintains itself for as long as energy flows through the system. So if you have a bathtub and you take the plug out, um, you'll get this formation of this whirlpool. And then as long as there's that gradient, as long as there's that, that plugs out and there's water in the tub, that whirlpool will persist. And you can imagine having like a hose that's bringing water continuously into the bathtub. You can maintain that whirlpool forever as long as you have new water flowing in, for example. Um, so what does that mean? Like it was really shocking at the time because there was this, just this idea of systems becoming more disordered, that being the natural thing. That was like how nature worked. So like people were mad about this. They were like, no, that's not, that's not possible. Like spontaneous organization, like even like back then, like it was really controversial talking about physical systems, even I said back then, even during this time where we had developed statistical thermodynamics to a certain level of complexity, where we thought we understood the natural world, there was like so much confusion that people thought that this idea of dissipative structures was like something that kind of violated a basic principle of thermodynamics. Anyway, so going back to this idea of a metasystem transition, Prigogine really explained these transitions and they're similar to basic phase transitions in chemistry or physics. So when you learn about water freezing, you have, um, you know, liquid H2O molecules. And if you, uh, if the, if enough, you know, heat is put into the system where it heats up, uh, I mean, sorry, if, uh, heat is removed from the system, like you have it in a fridge. Uh, those molecules will freeze and form this ordered structure. Um, so it's a lot different than the order, the dynamical order you see like in, in the living world. But um, the phase transition in its most general terms is you have a bunch of interacting particles which 
<clears throat> so that example of water freezing, that's just a normal phase transition in nature, but you have these non-equilibrium phase transitions where you get these interacting components and through their interactions, you start to get a sort of global coherence. And there's a threshold that's, that's passed where suddenly a form of um, organization emerges and you see something like those convection cells. So that's a similar transition where there's a global rearrangement into this highly ordered state um, that would seem like magic. It was like something like we didn't really understand, even, even though we see it really all throughout nature. Um, and, and so this non-equilibrium phase transition is an example of particles coming together to form a higher level dynamical ordered system. And then Prigogine thought this must have something to do with how life emerged in the first cell. And then there was a lot of work on the origin of life by this guy, Manfred Eigen in the 50s and 60s, and then Stuart Kaufman in like the 70s and 80s. But basically the idea was that living systems and kind of like the protocell that gave rise to, to life are these autocatalytic sets. They're these self-sustaining loops of activity that are not that different from the dissipative structures in nature, which are these like whirlpools and tornadoes, these kind of cycling systems that take in energy from the environment and dissipate that energy, but basically can maintain their organization as long as that energy is coming in. And so then you get this notion of, of, of living things as loops. They're self-sustaining chemical reaction loops that basically grow through this sort of like positive feedback me mechanism where they can amplify their size. Um, and then they maintain homeostasis by using negative feedback. So they're not constantly growing. The, the negative feedback kind of dampens down that amplification when they need to return to that stable state, this kind of like homeostatic state. So we've kind of developed this idea of, of, of living things as loops. Um, and we have these transitions where these adaptive systems emerge that are non-equilibrium phase transitions. Um, I use the term meta-system transitions that came from a, a Russian cyberneticist, this guy, Valentin Turchin, who wrote a very interesting book called The Phenomenon of Science. And basically, the metasystem transition is just a word to explain that systems come together and make a larger system. That system is a system of systems. So it's a metasystem. So a metasystem transition would then apply to so you can have a phase transition where you have this ordered state emerge, but then you have single-celled organisms coming together to form multicellular organisms. And then you have multicellular organisms coming together to form societies. So you see these transitions in the biological world and it explains the complexity and the hierarchical structure of our biosphere. And so it's a more general term. There was also a term called evolutionary transitions that's really popular um, in evolutionary biology, uh, put forth by the, the evolutionary biologist, John Maynard Smith, and these evolutionary 
transitions are specifically the ones that I mentioned, single cell to multicellular life, um, organisms forming sort of coherent social systems like an ant colony or human civilization. But metasystem transition would cover all of the non-equilibrium transitions that happened before life, so the ones that Prigogine was noticing, as well as the evolutionary transitions, as well as any transitions that come later in the evolution of life in the cosmos, which we'll talk about. Um, or it can refer to transitions inside an individual because we're hierarchical systems as well. Um, so there could be transitions where, for example, the emergence of like self-awareness and like higher cognition, like happens when you have like basically like separate computational modules in the brain sort of merging and you get this, you, again, you see this phase transition, it's called an ignition event in uh, global workspace theory and neuroscience, it's a popular consciousness theory, but basically you see the emergence of this global coherence, and that gives rise to new levels of control and awareness for um, intelligent organisms. And so those are transitions as well. So you have this story of transitions in nature that really explains what the evolutionary process is. It's a, pro it's a process of hierarchical self-organization and multi-level emergence where nature's simplest components organize themselves to form larger functional units. We start out with subatomic particles forming atoms, those coming together to form molecules, those coming together to form cells, cells coming together to form multicellular organisms, or organisms coming together to form societies. And now we have something like the global brain that's emerging on top of the biosphere, which is an integrated network of all these ecosystems that have come together. So you really have something like an organism with a nervous system that is uh, a result of these transitions. You get sort of this nesting effect that's sort of like Russian dolls just being stacked up. And so these are the holons and this is the holarchy of life. And people have talked about that without knowing anything about integral theory. Um, so this uh, story of cosmic evolution that integral theory has <clears throat> focused on is the story of the evolutionary theory of Spencer and Teilhard de Chardin. And, and Wilbur recognizes, you know, all of these people as being really important to, to, to his framework or whatever. Um, but so <clears throat> we can understand cosmic evolution as a series of metasystem transitions, um, but we're part of that system. We're a system made of many systems. So we undergo similar transitions. And that's where you see parallels between human development and the development of a society because they're both complex adaptive systems. They have these parallels and that you can understand the dynamics of systems at one level by understanding the dynamics of systems at other levels. In the book, I explained that's what poetic metanaturalism is about. Nature is basically creating these patterns that are sort of rhymes on the patterns that have come before it. And um, so you get this nested growing sort of web or ladder of complex adaptive systems and that we can start to use this framework to make predictions that reductionist science could never make. So we can make predictions about 
the global brain and whether there's this collective intelligence among humanity and whether there's even some sort of collective mind that has emerged or will emerge based on understanding the dynamics of the human brain. And um, so, yeah, so that's the, the concept of the metasystem transition. And I think that sort of leads into this concept of metacognition, which will explain what free will is and what agency is and how that sort of emerges from this story of this hierarchical self-organization in, in nature. A um, couple of things to mention. Uh, I said this, this interview would be kind of chaotic. I'm just throwing as much stuff out there that I, you know, everything that I think is relevant. Um, so this metasystem transition process starts with inanimate matter and then it leads to life and then it leads to conscious agents and societies and culture. Um, and Greg Henriquez, a psychologist who just came out with a new book, um, he has this unified theory of knowledge that's similar to what I've been describing or, or is a part of this puzzle, but he has this illustration of the tree of knowledge that shows this kind of tree of emergence where you first have matter, life, mind, and then culture. And that's, that's how we should understand the evolution of the universe. It's not just particles fluctuating and bumping into each other and everything else above that is fake. It's actually this nested process where we get these emergences, where we have not just the universe becoming more complex, but generating novel phenomena in nature like life and consciousness. So um, when life emerges, basically that's when information becomes important in the world. You have information processing systems that are moving with agency. These systems don't move the way inanimate systems move. And let me explain that on an individual level and then kind of like at a at a cosmic level, you could say. So if you throw a rock and a bird off of a tower, the rock is going to follow a Newtonian trajectory. You can easily calculate where that rock's going to go and where it's going to land. Uh, but you can't do that with the bird because the bird's unpredictable with classical physics in that way. Um, and the bird has to be understood with uh, understanding its evolutionary history and what it's going to do to survive. So some people, you know, who like Stu Kaufman, who talk about emergence, uh, they're like, um, well, life's not predictable. Uh, and inanimate systems are, and that's the importance of agency. And, and it's important to see that distinction because the, the behavior of systems does become a lot more unpredictable, but I'm actually arguing that it's not completely unpredictable. You know, the bird's not going to spot on the ground because it's going to do what it has to do to survive. So you won't know the trajectory exactly, but you can make educated guesses about what the bird will do to survive. And if there's dangerous stuff in the area, you might be able to path, like if you set stuff up like on the ground or in that area that were specifically dangerous to birds, you could understand a, a predict, you could predict the path that the bird would take that it needs to, to survive, for example. So what is, what is being said here in terms of like, the ontological nature of reality. 
Uh, well, what I'm saying is at the very bottom level. Okay. So something that I didn't mention that we need to understand. So there's a couple important ways to talk about like the, the, the mechanisms of this progressive evolutionary process. Um, there's this multi-level nature to reality. There's this multi-level emergence. Um, and we can call that philosophy. If it's like a philosophy of mind, we can call that multi-level monism. And we'll come back to that. Um, so reality is forming these levels through these transitions. Uh, but there's also this other mechanism that's really important to this uh, that we could call dialectical dynamics. And so I'm throwing a lot of these terms out there, you know, in this really dense way because people in the community are familiar with these concepts. Um, so just this idea of, of this dialectical dynamic is that you have things in nature that are sort of opposites and those things aren't actually opposed to each other. In a lot of circumstances, they kind of complete each other. They're, they're more of complements than they are opposites. And something arises new out of the interplay between these two things. And um, you could talk about this in various levels of abstraction. So we'll talk about it in a physical way, but you could also talk about it as like ideas. You have an idea that's a thesis and then someone criticizes that idea and uh, that's called an antithesis. And then you have the synthesis that emerges from that. And it's the idea basically once its errors have been pruned out and it's something greater than both the things that it, it came from. Um, but in nature, there's this kind of interplay between order and disorder or um, stability and chaos or uh, um, knowledge and ignorance or knowledge and uncertainty. And um, so, and, and randomness and, and inevitability or randomness and determinism. So what this model shows, like if, if you really look into all of the work, like if you put all these puzzle pieces together and you looked at Prigogine's work and you've looked into quantum mechanics and, and, and chaos theory, and you're trying to understand like, where's the universe going? You're saying it has this trajectory, but that sounds deterministic. But then you're also saying that hard determinism isn't true and that there's all this kind of unpredictability in nature. Um, like, what are you saying and how does agency, how does free will fit into that? So, um, to explain that we have to understand that there is randomness at the most fundamental level of nature. There's, there's quantum randomness and then there's chaotic phenomena that can't be predicted with a Laplacian demon. So like, uh, you could imagine us creating the most powerful supercomputer and you can't predict what chaotic systems will do like a tornado, you can't predict its trajectory perfectly. There are limits to what we can know. Um, so there's this randomness in nature that allows for surprises. It's not this strict deterministic story that Laplace imagined where everything is determined in advance. Um, there's a sort of fluctuating component to nature. However, when particles come together and interact, they form systems um, that basically um, exist in these stable attractors that we mention and evolve in this kind of what you could call like a global determinism. People have talked about it in that way, where you do have trajectories that are predictable on this large scale, 
even though the things that they're made of are constantly fluctuating. So we said that the story of non-equilibrium thermodynamics is that energy is pushing a system far from equilibrium and you will get the emergence of an ordered structure. So the thinking is that life had to emerge because there were certain energy gradients and areas like hydrothermal vents, which is where we think that life arose, that basically kind of thermodynamically forced this ordered self-sustaining chemical system into existence. And because the earth is always getting free energy from the sun, it's keeping the system far from equilibrium so that those self-sustaining systems, those, those, those loops are constantly adapting and, and going towards this more ordered state. And you get this so all of these organisms are basically in these stable states, which are attractors, and then they're interacting and linking up and forming these larger systems that are also attractors. And the hierarchical nature of the system makes it even more resilient because if the larger system falls apart, like a society falls apart because it didn't have a good social system or a good you know, governance structure, um, then the pieces can reassemble themselves. So this hierarchical architecture, Herb Simon, Nobel Prize winning economist, was the first to really talk about the resilience of this hierarchical structure. And it's a big part of control theory and how we design systems now. But anyway, so there's this random in, randomness in nature, but then there's this organization that emerges in these far from equilibrium conditions. And, and, you can really understand these metasystem transitions as occurring uh, at this point that's, that's been called on the edge of chaos. So it's this sort of balance between order and chaos that's needed for a transition towards a higher state of order. And um, this point is called criticality. And so this is... Criticality is sort of when there are tipping points. So when, when single-celled organisms formed a multicellular organism, there was this sort of tipping point uh, and this critical phase where this higher-ordered structure emerged out of basically component systems that first were kind of freely interacting somewhat chaotically that have come together and formed this larger coherent uh, metasystem. So this tells us a couple of things. First, it's important because um, these shifts in worldviews and, and this coming paradigm shift that I'm saying is emerging, these are metasystem transitions. These are just like organisms evolving. And so when a new worldview emerges and that catches on, it restructures society into a different sort of coherent stable non-equilibrium state and so when these transitions happen um basically if a system is too rigid and too ordered it can't undergo such a transition so because no way of doing things is stable forever there will need to be these transitions for the system to continue to thrive and evolve but you can expect a period of chaos before this transition. So we shouldn't be surprised by the chaos that we're seeing right now. It's absolutely what you see before one of these phase transitions where you get this tipping point and there's this global 
shift in dynamics that creates this more coherent structure. So when shit hits the fan in society, um, you see a lot of chaos, but then there's this sort of response, this collective response by humans, which are these kind of statistical agents. Um, and you will see, uh, usually when times get this chaotic and divided, it's basically that system sort of begging for a new worldview, a new, a new way of doing things. And so um, that kind of explains like what we're going through right now and uh, why you can expect there to be chaos, but why that there's potentially light on at the end of the tunnel, because this is one of those transition periods. The same concept goes for the worldview that a single person has. And, and so, so you have this belief structure that explains, you know, that, that is your sense-making lens for, for understanding how to navigate like a, a chaotic world. Um, when you undergo a belief system change, there's sort of a global restructuring in the brain. Um, and a, a restructuring of, of cognition, that's also a metasystem transition. And there's been a lot of interesting work done with psychedelics that show basically that's what psychedelics do. They sort of dissolve your old belief structures and allow for flexibility. So they, they create this chaos in the brain. Um, and it puts you at this state close to criticality where you're on the edge of chaos um, such that you're in a place where worldview shifts can happen more easily. Um, so these dynamics, like the dynamics of metasystem transitions, explain the emergence of all the levels. They also explain the dynamics of how systems go through cycles and how these different levels emerge. And um, that's also used to explain the evolution of cognition. And uh, so using this to explain free will, basically, um, yeah, maybe maybe I should save that for the next part. So uh, yeah, um, let's pause there and I'll talk about how we should look at the mind as a multi-level controller and how this hierarchical story starts to explain what agency is, what free will is, uh, why we need to exercise metacognition and meta-awareness and basically how we're going from systems that are kind of programmed by our evolutionary history towards systems that have a higher level of agency and freedom. It's very beautiful to think about the cosmos uh, with this kind of uh, fractally distributed kind of patterning, right? That the processes that bring things together in their emergence are operating at all scales. They're operating throughout time. They're operating inside and outside, individually and collectively, physically and psychologically. That's a very beautiful image. I like that. It, it is a fractal, yeah. Or a spiral, so a, yeah. There's an interesting doubling, it seems like, in the story you're telling about this historical moment, that we're not only going through one of these metasystem changes, that the metasystem change we're going through is specifically one in which metasystem 
changes become salient and obvious to us. It's like a meta meta systemic change. Yes, <laughs> that's very intriguing. But let's uh, let's go into the free will thing. How do we? How is all of this moving us towards agency rather than demonstrating that we have no agency? Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, let me also say just to clarify something about how the evolutionary process in the biosphere could be related to the cosmic evolutionary process. Not could be. I'm arguing is related. So. Um, you have this nested hierarchy of systems and you we've talked about how systems at one level can kind of illuminate dynamics and phenomena of systems at higher levels such that for example when we first started studying biology and organisms we didn't really think of the biosphere itself as a self-regulating system we didn't know it was doing that we didn't know it was like as a like a global system like keeping the atmosphere conditions like the the gas composition friendly for life and the temperature of the planet in a in a range that was that's essentially uh friendly for life um, and it has to do a lot of work to do that. It's not very easy. Um, the, the guy who, uh, invented Gaia theory, James Lovelock, which is just, you know, a complete, it's a, it's a theory of the bio biosphere being a cybernetic system. There's nothing mystical. That's just the name that his neighbor, who is the, the author of the Lord, Lord of the flies gave him for this, but it was really just saying the biosphere is a cybernetic system. He was influenced by, by cybernetics. And so it's using feedbacks to maintain the state of homeostasis. Um, and ecosystems show these dynamics as well. So the point I'm making is when we understood organisms, we didn't understand that ecosystems were also complex adaptive systems or organisms, superorganisms, or that a biosphere is a superorganism or a society acts like a superorganism. Um, and there's still pushback against those ideas, um, but basically the ideas are what they are, and it's just sort of like a language thing. Like people don't like they didn't like Gaia because it's you know oh you're you're saying that the universe that the biosphere is an organism, and then you're giving it a name that's a godlike entity like Mother Nature or whatever, and and so people didn't like it. And, and when people, you know, maybe there's some new age people out there that are worshiping Gaia. I don't know. Um, you have the Gaia channel that has tons of bullshit, tons of complete pseudoscience, you know, just misinforming people. And then so people are naturally going to be angry at the Gaia idea, but the Gaia idea is totally legitimate. People like, um, Carl Sagan's wife, I can't remember her name. She really important evolutionary biologist that understood basically how we went from prokaryotic to eukaryotic cells by the, the fusion of, of, of two cells, basically like a cell ate another cell. And that's how we got organelles. We got, um, complex cells basically because there was this sort of, um, one ate another, but the other thing didn't die. They, they, they formed this symbiotic relationship, but, um, yeah, I can't. Wow. Um, so she's super famous, but people like her, People like John Maynard Smith, people like E.O. Wilson, uh, very much stress the importance of this idea that there are these organisms at higher levels. And these we can call these superorganisms. E.O. Wilson had a book all about how ants act like superorganisms. Um, you can find videos of like ants when they need to like cross 
something like maybe they need to go over water, they'll form a bridge with their bodies such that like it actually looks like this larger organism until you like zoom in and you see all these tiny different things. But so we know that you can have complex adaptive systems at higher levels. And what we call an organism is just a pattern, a functional pattern that that applies to these higher systems that are also trying to maintain their existence against this tendency to fall apart. Um, when you, when you, um, when you realize that, then you have to ask the question about, okay, we have consciousness because it's emergent from, you know, 80 billion neurons in the brain. Um, we usually think, okay, you're a conscious thing, but we don't really think, okay, you're actually a community of agents. You're not this one thing. You're these things that in the evolutionary history of life used to be like autonomous things that have come together now and somehow consciousness emerges from that. So when you have a global network of humans exchanging information, the way that neurons are exchanging information in the brain, there's going to be some sort of collective intelligence that emerges at the system level, at the meta system level, I guess you could say. And then you have to speculate about whether a mind could emerge at that level too, and whether a conscious mind could emerge. And it's still an open question, but if you believe that what gives rise to the phenomenon are these dynamics, then there's no reason to think that you, excuse me, that you can't have mind emerging at that level. And then, so if that's the case, then you have mind emerging at the level of a planet. And then if, you know, we'll come back to this after we talk about free will, like the kind of final thing, um, like where's all of this headed. If you have life as a network spreading throughout the solar system and then throughout the galaxy and throughout the universe at large, which technological progression should make inevitable if you buy the story that life is just evolving to become more resilient and robust, um, then the integrated network of life is this expanding region of intelligence and mind that's spreading throughout the cosmos and converting inanimate matter into that computational structure. So you have a story of the universe waking up. It's not just biological agents waking up in an inanimate world. Biological agents are an inanimate world manifesting itself into this conscious state um, through these evolutionary mechanisms. It's just as legitimate to look at the whole universe as slowly waking up um, as it is, as you know, I don't think it's, it's very helpful or accurate to see life as something separate from the universe. This life's emerging in an inanimate universe um, is the universe waking up through this interplay between this tendency towards disorder and this counter tendency, which is the evolutionary process that's order. But it's not like, oh, nature doesn't care about life. Nature's just becoming more disordered. Um, no, nature has this dialectical dynamic where it has both of those things. And the sort of synthesis from those two things is this maximally complex and integrated complex adaptive system that would be like an organism or a mind at the cosmic level. So we jumped ahead a bit, but I mean, this whole conversation has been like that. So I don't think it matters. Um, so 
let's go back to humans and try to understand what we are and what agency is in this whole picture. So we already established that if it's not this Laplacian billiard ball universe, that there's not strict determinism, that everything isn't set in stone to where we have no agency. There's this randomness, which allows for basically reality is this kind of fluctuating thing, but because it's because there's energy flowing throughout the universe, you get the emergence of these organized systems that are these attractors, basically. And you get order crystallizing out of this noisy sea of fluctuations. And um, so when you have the emergence of a biological organism, you have the emergence of agency. And basically that system is evolving and adapting to its environment. And as it becomes more adapted to its environment, it's encoding information about that environment. It's building up a model of the world. And cybernetics was the first field to really try to talk about this in a formal way. And they said any system that controls or regulates another system, and that's kind of like technical terminology that can be applied to like artificial systems we're trying to build but it also applies to biological systems. Any system that has to survive in its environment must have a model of the system that, that it has to exist in and extract energy from. And so you can see a genome, like DNA is encoding a model of the world around it in some abstract sense. And this information gives rise to adaptive behavior. That's what we call agency or purpose and what people called teleology or this sort of vital force. It's the force of information that animates a system that makes it alive. It's no longer an inanimate system. Um, so earlier I said I was going to talk about agency at the individual and cosmic level, but I forgot to say what I meant about the cosmic level. So on a planet, and this is kind of jumping ahead, sorry, it's totally schizo and all over the place, but that's okay. Um, in a planet with life on it, intelligent life, not only do you see agents moving around with intentions and they're not behaving in a way that a rock behaves. Uh, so, you know, you can jump off the ground, like without a force pushing you. You won't see a rock like just suddenly go against the force of gravity. Um, and that's because it doesn't do metabolism. It doesn't have energy stored. It's not able to do that physically. So it's not defying physics really, but it's defying the world of physics that the inanimate world knows in a way. Um, but when we start sending satellites into space, this is also something that doesn't happen naturally in the inanimate world. There's accretion where massive objects pull in other objects because of its gravitational force, the way our planet pulls in meteors and asteroids. But you don't see massive objects being ejected from planets. It's just not something that happens in the world of, you know, with, without agency. So if you see that, if you see anti-accretion on a planet, something being ejected from that planet, especially if it gets ejected and it goes into orbit, something like a satellite, you can know that's a, that's a planet with life on it. That's a, a planet with adaptive complexity. 
with agency, with systems that have encoded information about the world around it. And now they start manipulating the world such that they can kind of push back or find loopholes in, in, in these, you know, physical laws. Uh, so, um, life changes the dynamics that we see in nature. And in that sense, it is kind of like vitalism. It is kind of mystical because it's something that couldn't happen in a universe without life. You just won't see this sort of evolution of the cosmos towards this more, like if life starts to spread, like I'm arguing it must, um, and it starts transforming the universe in this way, it's a totally different evolution of that system compared to a system with no life that system would be one that would that slowly tends towards disorder so life is this kind of counter tendency um to the tendency towards decay um so biological organisms have agency they have agency because there was a meta system transition where molecules came together and formed a self-sustaining information processing network. That information processing network is a physical system that has cybernetic control. So it's able to initiate actions and regulate itself through the use of positive and negative feedback loops. Um, so that's what agency is. Agency is cybernetic control and inanimate systems don't have it. Now the question is, okay, that's agency. Life really is different than inan the inanimate world. The Elan Vital was really correct. We just, you know, people criticize it as being this mystical thing, but it's not. We just didn't have a word for information. Now we're seeing that information's kind of propelling it all. And now the materialists are, would be totally fine with it by calling it information. Um, but we see quickly that it's, we're starting to have this worldview that's more complex. It's not completely deterministic. It's not completely random. It's a little bit of a hybrid between the two. Um, we have um, we have this sort of like um, this this what looks like this vital force that 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 violates the laws of physics. We can like go against gravity, but no, it's not really something that goes against physics it's just more complicated than we thought and um there's information which isn't necessarily material but is it non-physical no information has to be encoded in a physical substrate and really information emerges from the statistical correlation between systems so it's really like we're starting to see that reality is built of these relations and these processes so yeah it's a whole new thing and it deserves a whole new name and you see the beginnings of this with like process you know, theory of Whitehead, but you have modern physicists like Carlo Rovelli saying reality is relational. It's all of the same worldview that's kind of emerging. And it's this dynamic worldview where the old words don't apply anymore. It's, 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 it's something new. It's sort of a multi-levelism. Is it like, it, we're not saying, so, you know, traditionally there was materialism and dualism and dualism saw the mind as something separate from the physical world. This is kind of correcting that and saying, okay, the world's not totally material. We do have mind. We do have experience. And that's not material in the way we think of it. There's this subjective world. Um, but um, the mind's not totally separate from the physical world. It's sort of this manifestation of that. So dualism's not right either, at least not substance dualism, property dualism, 
works because it just says there's one physical substance, but there's these different properties. Um, so uh, we see something like a, a multi-level monism or a multi-levelism. You have new emergent phenomena that brings new, not just quantitative systems in the world, but new qualitative differences. Um, so with the emergence of life, we have agency. We have this causal change in the structure of reality where agents start like, you know, behaving in a way that you won't see in the inanimate world. And if you see that sort of behavior from a system, you know, there's information encoded in that system, you know, there's life, uh, on that planet, for example. And if you start to see like, um, things going into space, like being ejected into space, or if you see a planet and a big asteroid is coming toward that planet and threatening that planet's structure, then if you see that thing get blown up suddenly, then you realize, okay, there's, there's life, there's intelligent life on that planet trying to uh, save itself. And, and we're actually like, you don't see that sort of causality without life. So there's a causal change in the world that changes that, the, the dynamics of that world. Um, that's absolutely real. Um, so you have agency, but the question is, is that agency free will? When we think about free will, we think about like, do we have like freedom in our decisions or are we sort of programmed to do what we're going to do? So the idea of basic agency kind of goes against, we need to understand that there's two types of determinism. Basic agency kind of trumps physical determinism, this sort of inanimate world where things have to follow these classical trajectories. Um, but when we get biological agency, we're still like, if you see a single celled organism, it's not really going to, doesn't seem to have much freedom. It's going to swim towards chemical food and away from toxins. So it seems to be pretty predictable. It's like, how much choice does it have? So then we, we basically get a, a, another level of determinism, which is biological determinism, where a system's behavior is sort of a result of its programming. It's programming over its evolutionary history, and it's programming uh, according to what it's learned during its lifetime, if it has a brain. And um, much of the way that we behave during the day is automatic. We're sort of on autopilot. We have these automatic systems that kind of just take care of everything. I mean, if, if you touch something that's hot, you'll pull your hand back before you even have you know, time to consciously realize what happened. Uh, most things that we do during the day when we're like driving or something, uh, we, we're not really thinking about everything that we're doing. So we're on autopilot a lot, but we aren't always. Um, and that's what makes us unique as humans. We have this, um, this conscious mind, which allows for sort of effortful controlled behavior. <clears throat> and that didn't exist before in the biosphere that that was something that came with human evolution and it gives us it was the result of a meta system transition where basically we had a prefrontal cortex that would allow um that 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 kind of um integrated all of these automatic systems into this you know you you have this conscious control system that emerged that can override the automatic system so for most of the time, the automatic system's fine, but if you're fully being 
if your behavior is fully determined by your automatic systems, you're behaving without conscious reflection. So someone who's gets triggered and responds in a way like has like this emotional outburst, you see these YouTube videos of people and they're like freaking out on somebody because maybe someone did something small and like there's a Christian Bale video where he's just freaking out on someone on the set of Terminator. He's like angry that someone like, you know, walked across his line of view and took him out of a state. But for like three minutes, he's like, you know, just like wailing on the guy and then like that goes viral and makes him look really bad. Basically, we have these reactions to things and there's sort of these automatic programs that are playing out. If someone has good, healthy executive control, they automatically see that their behavior isn't optimal. It's not optimally adaptive and they can adjust that behavior with conscious reflection. They can stop the rant. They can stop the emotional outburst. They can stop the 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 biased behavior or the yeah so basically the human mind is a multi-level controller and what emerged first in our evolutionary history is just this basic biological agency where you kind of have this programming that you know you're an information processing system and so you're not an inanimate system you don't you know you, you behave in sort of unpredictable ways compared to those inanimate systems, but you're somewhat of a slave to your programming. So what free will is in this story of meta systems and, and, and emergence and, and levels and, and hierarchy, um, basically conscious control is a higher level of cybernetic control that comes after and that kind of monitors your programmed behavior, looking for behavior that's not consistent with your long-term goals. And then that's what our conscious mind allows us to do is basically, because everything that we're programmed for in our evolutionary history, that sort of behavior is not necessarily the behavior that's optimal for modern society. And when we became a member of society, we became a part of this collective and we had to follow rules that we didn't have to follow hundred thousand years ago. So what free will is, is essentially metacognition. It's thinking about thinking and it's our ability to override our biological programming. And we do have that freedom. And if we don't realize it, we don't exercise it. And if we don't exercise it, it's not just something that's troublesome at an individual level where you're behaving in ways where you're kind of the slave to your instincts and you're not regulating your emotions and aggression, for example, but it has this effect at the societal level as well, because you get tribalistic behavior and you get these tendencies where, you know, people go towards sort of extremism and you get like the political division that we're seeing right now is because like one side is getting angered by the other side and that other side's getting triggered. And you have this positive feedback loop where the division just keeps increasing. Um, when if people were really exercising like metacognition and meta-awareness, which would be just sort of awareness that you're part of this larger meta-system, the system of agents that's you know interdependent where we all sort of are causally connected and, and depend on each other. Um, when you realize that, then you're more likely to not just regulate yourself better, but you look at society and be like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. One side is 
you know, getting more extreme and that's making the other side more extreme. And then both sides are just getting to a point where there's complete gridlock and, and maybe this will lead to something like a civil war. Like, and, and when everybody in society is recognizing that, then there's this effort to avoid that. Everybody goes, okay, yeah, I can see sort of the, the forces and the dynamics at play. I'm not going to be part of that. I'm going to play a different game. I'm going to play game B instead of game A. And I'm going to do what I can to augment my behavior in a way that, you know, if everybody were to do that would lead to like this new sort of global coherence and coordination. So the meta system transition that is the transition from this old worldview, however, however people saw things, whether it was religion, but it was filled with all of these supernatural ideas that aren't consistent with what we know about reality, or whether it was the scientific reductionist view that was this nihilistic worldview that said there's no meaning or purpose. Um, the transition to this new thing is not just a change in consciousness at the individual level where you become better at pursuing your own goals, but it, it leads to this transition at this meta system level, which would basically lead to a society that is less at conflict with each other. And that's more integrated and able to tackle the existential challenges that we currently face that requires the full computational power of the whole, you know, global superorganism. We can't solve climate change. We can't solve income inequality. We can't solve, you know, problems with increasing centralization of, of wealth and power. We can't solve these problems without the collective power of human civilization working as one computational entity towards this single goal of the continuation of life in the universe. Um, so yeah, the, 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 this paradigm that I'm saying is emerging is in, in one sense, it's, it's not that different because it's just the paradigm that comes after all the other paradigms and they were all accumulating and building on each other. But in some ways it is qualitatively different because it's a synthesis of all of those paradigms and it's exactly what you said. It's when we realize there's a story to nature and we're part of that story. So suddenly there's a kind of awakening in a mindset where we're like, holy shit, we do have agency. What we do is actually completely important to this process of life continuing in the universe and the universe generating increasing complexity and increasing an increasing diversity of you know, what can be experienced. Um, that all for that to happen, there has to be this worldview shift where the agents realize that they're part of a larger system. And so I do think that it's not just something that will happen here, anywhere there are biospheres that has this tendency towards higher complexity and intelligence, you're going to have a species that basically comes to this meta modern worldview where they realize they're part of this larger system and that for the systems to survive as a whole, they need to work together. So it's kind of psychedelic. Um, it's, it's, it's like spiritual in the sense that we realize we're connected to some larger process. It's very practical in the sense that, you know, and I haven't even 
we won't have time to get into all, all this stuff, but it tells you how to structure your systems to be optimally resilient. They have to be adaptive. They have to learn. Diversity is important. Uh, complexity is kind of a, a balance between how diverse the system is and how connected it is. So we want to encourage diversity. We want to converge, uh, uh, encourage interconnection. And with those two things, there's sort of this dialectical dynamic there too, because when we become too connected, there's this worry that things become homogenous and that something like a hive mind can emerge. And I think that's kind of like what China's authoritarian government wants. They have this social credit system that's making it possible for there to be a diversity of ideas or for you to be able to criticize the government. Russia has cut out its, um, you know, its, its media is not free. You could make arguments that in the US, like, you know, we have those same problems too, but at a lower level. And we could become a surveillance state like in, you know, like China in like five years if, 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 we're, if we don't, if we're not careful. Um, so how can we become more connected while also keeping diversity? Because homogeneity is the opposite of complexity. Complexity requires a differentiation of structures. And and this is really what Herbert Spencer saw in, in the 1800s. He was like, evolution is this process of the universe becoming more complex. By more complex, I mean more differentiated and more integrated at the same time. Unfortunately, that idea was abused by people like the Nazis who tried to use this idea of evolutionary progress as a ladder that would um, allow people to make justifications about inferior and superior races. That's one of the reasons that this worldview kind of died. On one hand, it was associated with like Christianity, Christianity and because of Teilhard de Chardin. And then on the other hand, uh, it, you know, people worried about this kind of social Darwinism that leads to could lead to like eugenics movements and ideas about racial superiority, which is totally wrong. When you look at the real thing, you're like, okay, there's not a clear ladder. It's actually a web everything's connected. All of the levels depend on each other. And, um, and diversity is super important. So any theory that doesn't like celebrate diversity is missing one half of complexity. It's, you know, this tendency towards complexity is becoming more integrated, but the structures are also becoming more diverse. So it gives us kind of an existential philosophy, but a practical way to live life as an individual and as a society well <laughs> uh, what i heard in all that was agency and free will are implied wherever we see the use of energy to create self-regulatory effects that are relatively unpredictable relative to lower order dynamics the metacognitive thinking about thinking is a prominent example of that and that insofar as meta system emergence that creates new levels is going to keep going, there will be a continual progress towards something like agency and free will in the universe. Uh, that's going to require an ethical sweet spot between integration and differentiation. And if we're lucky, that will yield a more adaptive cultural superorganism, a guy in mind and a cosmic awakening in a universe where all successful interplanetary species are basically metamodernists. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you for making me sound out crazy. It's like, uh, I, 
I, I wouldn't give this talk to everyone, but I thought you would be able to synthesize it in that way. I was hoping you would. And uh, you did it better than I even imagined. So yes, that's <laughs> in a nutshell, that's, that's the whole picture. Um, I guess a couple of things to end with. Um, yeah, this freedom is important because basically, um, yeah, the, the, it gets pretty weird because the higher, higher levels of agency allow more freedom such that the agent is becoming less predictable in its behavior and, 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 and more free in a sense. There are literal more degrees of freedom in someone who's acting freely. So for example, you can imagine someone that has been raised like in conditions where they're set up for failure almost. And on paper, you might see the statistics of that person be like, well, this person's going to be a criminal because they just show all of these signs. And there are all these deterministic forces that can, you know, let's say someone's just abused from an early age. Let's say they were raised by a criminal and their, their parents taught them how to be thieves and stuff. Um, they would be put on a more, you know, there, there's this interplay between randomness and determinism where determinism is a factor. Like there are all these elements, all these variables that are leading towards, you know, certain that lead to certain types of behaviors. Um, but at the same time, if that person becomes aware of their history and their biases, they can completely flip the script on someone and just do what's completely unexpected. And usually, I mean, if, if someone does that, they've become aware of this agency that they have this without these fancy words, they would recognize basically that they have this model of the world and it's created by all these beliefs and biases and they're behaving in a certain way, but that they can tweak that. And that, you know, maybe that person could find meaning in like, or, or have some sort of new level of awareness where they're like, yeah, people expect me to behave this way because I was raised this way, but I don't have to, like, I can literally change tomorrow. Um, it's hard to do that because our ability to exercise metacognition is um, is associated with healthy prefrontal cortex functioning. So this part of the brain that's responsible for this higher cognitive ability um, when people are addicted to drugs, for example. Um, and you see this, just certain people have better cognitive control than other people. And so basically they have better free will. You have the famous marshmallow experiment where they ask kids, you know, you can eat this marshmallow now, or you can wait 15 minutes and you can get a second marshmallow. You can have two instead of one. And this predicted, you know, the kids who couldn't control their impulses and would eat the marshmallow, it predicted like 20 years down the line that they would be less successful in school in relationships, all of that thing. So it seemed like they're on this deterministic trajectory, but if so, so it's not easy for someone to gain this cognitive control that allows them to kind of gain this new level of freedom associated with meta awareness, but you can absolutely do that just by, first of all, making them aware of the concepts, which kind of puts them in control of, 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 of their behavior when they just suddenly become aware. Okay. 
And, and what the reason that works is because when they become aware, if you could show real-time fMRI on their brain, you would see a certain new type of activity in the prefrontal cortex. And you would be like, okay, now they're using this effortful control or top-down control um, in this new way. Um, but you really want to build that up because it's like a muscle. So you want to do like, for example, meditation and meditation, I know is part of the kind of spiritual world and meta modern community does these like practices. They, they value things like that. And it's really important because meditation, you know, when we sit still and try to clear our mind, it's basically our minds like bouncing around and doing all these automatic things. And we're controlling that suddenly where we're controlling our attention. So it's, it's really strengthening our metacognitive muscles and our ability to exercise free will. Um, and so I've argued in a New York Times article, I wrote that kids need meditation training early, especially those kids who fail the marshmallow test. And this could drastically change the outcome of their lives. Um, but it changes their lives because it gives them their own autonomy. They start realizing that they can control the way they feel and they don't have to be sort of slaves to their programming. So um, it is this sort of awakening that people have to go through. And it's going to be easier for some people than others, especially if you, for whatever reasons, have impaired executive functioning. Like the addict will have a lot of trouble changing his patterns, even though he knows it's killing him, his behavior. Um, so we need to be aware of the kind of cognitive tools and practices that we do to build up this, this, this higher level of freedom. But what's interesting about it too, is it seems like for this process to continue, it's sort of this deterministic trajectory that leads to, to agents with free will that they need to exercise to basically get us out of this mindset that if we stuck with, we'd be doomed with. So it's like, the higher levels of agency are still part of this cosmic evolutionary trajectory that is in some sense deterministic. There's like this global determinism. Um, there's this philosopher, Emily something, I forget her name. Um, I'll mention that in, 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 when I write an article about this topic and share it you know, to, these, to, to the metamodern groups and the integral stage group. But um, this picture of determinism is basically like the universe is like a Sudoku game. And, and so it's not deterministic in the old way, but they're basically like, um, kind of forced moves in design space that, that, that because life is solving these problems, it, it kind of creates this inevitable trajectory and, and because life is always adapting. So it's interesting with this picture, you have randomness and determinism and then agents that that's what kind of allows agency because everything's not set in stone but you do have this kind of logical order to it such that part of the process is sort of this awakening where people go meta um so there's sort of this compatibility between free will and destiny in this story that is kind of similar to like, you know, ideas from Christian theology. Um, of course there are ideas from other, there's a Buddhist idea called, um, interdependent co-arising, which is kind of like also points to this dialectical dynamic, creating this larger thing. So yeah, there's this trajectory to things where we, 
that this, you know, everybody becoming meta modern is what has to happen for the universe to continue organizing itself. So does that put limits on our agency in some way? I don't know the answer to that completely, but it seems like the universe is fundamentally creative and it's generating these surprises and that there's some sort of cosmic evolutionary program that sort of tells us where things are going roughly, but I don't think in reality, like the universe doesn't even know where it's going. It's creating, but there is this sort of logical structure to it all. That's kind of this fractal structure where these, you know, system designs get mirrored at these higher levels. Um, so yeah, uh, there's lots of questions that we've left open. Like what, why, why is there this building plan? Roy Gould, a Harvard astronomer, um, called it a building plan. Paul Davies calls it a cosmic script. What's the nature of this like design and this creativity in nature? It seems to be something beyond what we, you know, what we understood about science, uh, what we understood about the universe, like the, the story that science was telling us. Is there a designer? Are we living in a simulation? There's like, we talk about this for hours too. It's really interesting stuff. The answer is um, we don't know, but the story is way more magical and mystical than what we thought before. It, mind does seem to be what the universe is going towards. It inevitably generates it at the level of the individual, but there seems to be this expansion of mind to where at some point there could be this cosmic attractor where the, the universe becomes this conscious entity. And for me, that's very powerful spiritually. And I think there's lots of rooms within this paradigm, lots of room in this paradigm for people of different religious backgrounds, people who are previously atheists to kind of come together and say, there's a giant mystery here. The future is by definition going to be this extremely magical place because we're going to unlock all of these technologies and possibilities for experience that we didn't know. Why do things look the way they do. Um, and I don't think the old explanations for like this anthropic principle and fine tuning really hold up. We have to, to start thinking about maybe this reality is just one reality and that the story of levels goes back even further and try to understand, um, you know, the, the structure of the whole thing, because this trajectory in the universe, there is the fine tuning. There is the appearance of fine tuning of, you know, the laws and parameters, um, such that, you know, it needs to be a very precise thing and a kind of strange thing from a mathematical perspective. Like some of the values are not what you would expect. And if you tweak them at all, you wouldn't get a universe with life or really any structure at all. So this whole story that I've been telling necessitates metaphysical um speculation because the story is bigger than this one universe um and yeah so hopefully that explains how reality can be better explained um through loops and levels and this process of cosmic evolution where the entire world is waking up through life well, my uh, laptop is almost literally about to die. 
<laughs> so this is the perfect place to end. Yeah. I look forward to keeping this conversation going. And this has been a really interesting rambling torrent through the background and uh, extensions of integrated evolutionary synthesis. Thanks, Bobby. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you so much for allowing me to do this. And thanks for anyone listening who has dealt with all of uh, the rambling and the, the dense concepts, but I hope people use this as a way to, you know, if you're in an integral community, like it's a lot bigger than that. There's like, you know, a couple hundred years of science that has been building up this, you know, paradigm of, of emergence. And um, so I look forward to all of the, the ideas that the community comes up with and, and how they put things together, because as someone who's like writing books about this, I get influenced just as much by what I'm seeing the community talk about in these discussions in the comment sections, as much as what any scientist is doing today. So, um, yeah, follow my road to Omega YouTube channel and Substack, and yeah, uh, I look forward to your, uh, future interviews and, and seeing what's, uh, keeping up with what goes on with the integral stage. All right. Cheers, man. Be well. <laughs>